A good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? Join the authors of Design to Change and explore this series of conversations with designers and event owners. Driven by the need and conversations with event owners and event designers who use the event canvas around the world, this series explores the depths of conversations to elevate your abilities to look and act beyond the now. Episodes are hosted by Rude Janssen, Rue Friesen, Dennis Lehrer, and Paul Rukens, with illustrious changemakers, designers, and pioneers in the field of design and beyond. To explore these conversations and additional content, visit designtochange.online. For now, let's start the conversation. Conversations. Okay, welcome to this episode on stage. We have Trevor Louis joining us today from Toronto and Canada. Is that right, Trevor? Yeah, that's right. I finally landed back home, so yes. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, Trevor, you're a world traveler. We just saw each other at uh, IMAX in Frankfurt. Uh, you are a known, um, um, uh, I would say, chef, entrepreneur, um, really a centipede that does many different things. Um, you are the owner of the High Belt Group. You are very active in the food and beverage scene. Uh, you've written cookbooks. Um, I, it, it would be a too long a list kind of to read what people could read about you on LinkedIn, but we'll add that to the notes below. But um, first question we'd like to ask you, Trevor, is um, a good conversation can determine the change uh, forever. Would you leave it to chance? First of all, I agree with the statement because a good conversation, well, for me, what we always talk about is the notion of the dining room table. Um, we... When I say we, I guess people in my circle, but me specifically, I believe the dining room table is probably the last safe space to have a really good conversation. Mm -hmm. um, generally, utilizing food and beverage as a vessel to carry stories of yeah. not only the food, but our background, our differences, and our opinions without mm -hmm. having to wage war argument because the subtlety of food and drink really brings down the barriers. And so... Those conversations that we have at a dining room table can lead to something much greater down the road. I love that. Um, never waste a good meal moment is one of my life's mantras, right? Sometimes I prefer to skip a meal, especially when you're en route and um, and then really have a more extensive meal when you are ready for it and when whoever is with you is ready for that. Um, but I like it's uh, the table is not a place to have mediocre or poor conversations. It's really a place where good conversation thrives best, I suppose. Yeah, it is. And there's something about a dining space where we are already preconditioned to mm -hmm. have a certain level of etiquette. And so mm -hmm. that etiquette provides us a boundary to have conversation, Yeah. right? Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes we there's definitely no boundaries of conversation when it comes to online we've seen that particularly the last few years yeah and just going back to the basics of any conversation has really changed the last three years because of the pandemic we have an entire generation of humans um, who have been disconnected from human interaction that struggle with face-to-face -face conversation so in many yeah. aspects in 2023 we are rebuilding social skills yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that. Um, 
both my kids have, you know, gone through the pandemic whilst being university students or finishing up high school. Um, um, kids that are, are maybe much younger, you know, have had a very different social circumstance in which they experience that. But also us as adults, we've gone through a massive shift in our own behaviors, I suppose, how almost two years of meal moments have been disrupted uh, pretty dramatically. Um, how do you think, let's say, talking about events, right? So many people on this podcast or that are listening to this podcast are highly involved in events where event owners and event designers get together to think about um, the function and role of events as behavior change agents, but also food and beverage being a very important basic human need, but has so many different levels of application when it comes to the jobs it gets done, right? If you look at it very technically, this functional jobs, social jobs, emotional jobs, and basic needs, right, that, that get fulfilled. But it almost feels like the meal moment is this encapsulation of these four different, very important ingredients. Um, now, you've done in your uh, lifetime, not just, let's say, uh, the running of establishments where individuals come in by their own choice, but you are also involved in larger scale events. Um, and you have been involved in very large scale events. Is there a difference between the two? I think, I think intrinsically from the basis foundation, there's not a lot of difference. I say the same thing, whether you're producing an event for 10 people or 10,000, the steps are the same, right? Mm -hmm. And for us that have been in events our entire lives, our thought process is pretty much the same. You know, there's, there's an element of how you build that experience internally and how you deliver that experience externally to a customer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we all have the saying is that you're, you're as good as your last event. And, you know, I think about, I think what a lot of people may not know is that after my journey of leaving the supplier side of events, working at venues in 2018, mm -hmm. is that a lot of people thought that I left events. And, and in the aspect is I didn't, I'm actually probably a lot deeper in events today than I was back in 2018. Um, I have an active role uh, for my destination at Destination Toronto sitting on the board. And that's mm -hmm. allowed me the luxury to go to IMEX every year mm -hmm. and really look at how to position a destination for business events, right? Yeah. And yeah. so my, my, my role in that is different. Now, as a business person, I produce events every single day. Our team mm -hmm. produces large-scale events, but we focus on the food and beverage and experiential side, right? Um, but my agency that we started in COVID also launched our first conference this year. Um, and so I kind of feel like 2023 has been a year where I took the last 25 years of my experience and brought it mm -hmm. all back and laid it all out in a different format, right? It's, it's like you have a, a toolbox or a shed of all these assets you've accumulated yeah. And in the last five years, we shuffled them. And this year, yeah. I threw them all back out and went back to it and say, gosh, I really enjoy producing an event, but I also don't enjoy producing an event. I was reminded by myself, right? <laughs> um, and, and it's the same thing. You know, we had to produce an activation inside a trade show floor at the convention center, which was a place I worked for seven years. Yeah. I loved the nostalgia of conversations with stakeholders in producing an event from zero to a hundred, mm -hmm. but I didn't like the nitty gritty of the teardown and, you know, the move. And I'm like, I can live without this forever. 
right? So, yeah. So I, I, I've just sort of like had an internal remodeling of of lifestyle when it comes to events. Yeah. yeah. Now, <clears throat> uh, curious to ask because this is what you've been doing over the last five, five years. Um, one of the chapters in our book talks about the horizons of change, right? Um, what's on the horizons of change for the upcoming year for Trevor Louis? Well, the underwhelming theme for change for us has been embedded in, you know, personal discovery of lived experiences and trauma in not just the event industry, but in life in general. And, you know, the social justice movement over COVID really, uh, really gained its momentum because people found a way to utilize voice for the first time. For those who actually know how it is. Uh, the change that we're working on as an agency at Quell continues to be how we can center voices in mm -hmm. industries where those voices have been quiet for a long time. And when I say quiet, it's not by, by virtue of wanting to be quiet. It's a sake that there was never a platform for certain people to have a voice in. Um, you know, I'm deeply embedded in hospitality. And when yeah. I say hospitality, that's everything from events to food and beverage. Yeah. And I can tell you that The culinary and restaurant industry has some deep-rooted issues when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And I would say the event industry mirrors that some way as well. And mm -hmm. so the change for me is how can I continue to work to continue the momentum of these discussions for people mm -hmm. to understand where change needs to happen for us to be in a much better place as an industry. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of the work that I'm doing for our destination. You know, we're looking at positioning Toronto. You know, many people have probably heard the adage that Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world. We have 51% of our people in this city are born outside of this country, and mm -hmm. we have over 200 cultures. So it's yeah. extremely diverse. Yeah. But diversity doesn't mean inclusion. And that's something that we're really focused on. And yeah. that is a focus that I have when it comes to dining and in business events, because We can look optically at an event and say, look at the rainbow of people. But the question is, do the rainbow of people actually feel like they're included at that event? And what is their, what is their position and stance in the development of those experiences? And so I know that was a long-winded question, but that's really the basis of all the change that we'll continue to work on this year yeah. and beyond. And, and, you know, Quell, if, if people are looking for it, we'll add the link to, uh, to the comments, but you spell it Q-U-E-L-L. Uh, you also on your website have Quell, K-W-E-L, as the verb to put an end to or put a stop to, to subdue or silence, right? Um, how, how, does that, how does that get reflected in, let's say, the activities? You were mentioning you're producing your own event this upcoming year, so you're an event owner, right? You're the person that says... Let's do an event. Uh, many of the people that listen to this podcast might be event owners or sitting across from the table of the event owner, listening to this idea from an event owner about the event that they want to do. How does it feel to you to be an event owner from you, that perspective of being the instigator? Um, I, think, I think if you're a layman, Um, there is a misunderstanding uh, from people that attend events compared to those that produce events 
that mm -hmm. it's an easy it's an easy thing to do. And you know, you obviously the work you guys do show the intricacies of how to design an event. And you know, for us, I would say that even though I have almost thirty years of experience, it was a tremendous learning curve. Yeah. You know, I think that one thing is understanding the curveball of what the recovery from the pandemic means to people and that mm -hmm. it still actually has a tremendous amount of influence on the way people make decisions. Uh, we're obviously from a global perspective, looking at a major recession in most of the G7, G10 countries mm -hmm. that has a significant impact on how dollars are spent. And so as great as an idea hub that, that we thought we were, we were humbled in many ways. You know, we, mm -hmm. we, we, mm -hmm. we lost a tremendous amount of money, but at the end of it all, I would say, would I, would we do it again? And the, the answer is yes. Cause I think we were able to put something in the market that I think at the end of the day, when we are event owners and event producers, can you put something out there that is a point of difference from something else that someone has not been a part of? And I think we were able to do that. And so yeah. we may not be able to put a monetary value to that right now, but we mm. know what that value could potentially bring to other people. Yeah, yeah. So when you look at, let's say, because very often the first iteration of an event or the, let's say, the the first spade in the ground of doing the first edition, uh, very often there's a cadence or sometimes it's a one-off. <clears throat> um, how, how as an event owner, um, because you need a whole army of people to pull off an event, um, how do, you, how do you articulate what you want from the event from the get-go? How does that work? One of the most important things was the ethos of how we were looking for partnerships. Um, mm -hmm. Because about providing education around building strategy on DEI for business and events mm -hmm. is that it would have been easy for us just to take money from anyone or take partnership from anyone. Yeah. It was really important for us to believe in the ethos of what our organization and what our event was going to be, which means we have to bring in partners that agreed and live the same thing we did. Mm -hmm. So, so fundamentally as a business, if you were not on your way to the journey that we believe businesses should be on, mm -hmm. then we couldn't do We couldn't do business. You, you didn't have to, you, you didn't have to be a leader. You just have to have an acknowledgement to say, hey, this is an area that we're deficient in and we can really benefit from this partnership. We're committed to this. We want to be a partner with you. And that for us was a really big difference maker. And, you know, some would say it was maybe a, 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 a judgment or an error, a step, an error, because mm -hmm. it did not allow us to bring in as much funding as we wanted to. But we believe it was the right thing to do, yeah. and we stuck and we stuck with it. So we yeah. sacrificed, we sacrificed value and principle, or we sacrificed money before value and principle. And so, <clears throat> tell us a little bit more about the conference itself. So I think it's called the Unblock. Is that is that the name of the event? Yeah, it was uh, called Unblock. We had it in. Geez, was it was? Uh, I think it was in the end of March. We had it. Mm -hmm. um, it was essentially uh, a day and a half, two days of, you know, uh, unique 
interactive education that we felt was completely different than what some people experience in a day-to-day conference. Um, mm-hmm. they, you know, breakouts with a lot of interaction and a lot of hands-on learning that mm-hmm. provided people with true takeaways. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, we had a couple of keynotes with some pretty prominent speakers. Um, we we took a very strong stance on how we curated our food experiences. So our focus was to support BIPOC-owned small businesses uh, within the city uh, mm-hmm. with a focus <clears throat> on uh, women chefs as well. And we wanted them to utilize this platform to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is we ensured that they all got paid and all our speakers got paid. Um, yeah. You know, being a speaker myself, yeah, I'll, tell, I'll be honest. I'm tired of being asked to do shit for free. You know, I, I, I put in a lot of years and a lot of time to not have to do stuff for free. I want to be able to make the choice if I want to do something for free. I want to make the choice if it's philanthropic or if it's a partnership. But I understand that there's events out there where tickets are being sold and revenue is being made and speakers mm-hmm. are being asked to do stuff for free. Um, yeah. That was something that we were really focused on. Yeah. That... We wanted our suppliers, our, our small businesses to be compensated and our speakers to be compensated. Mm-hmm. Um, and we needed partners for that, right? Mm-hmm. But that was very important for us. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I would say it's value driven by uh, almost rooted in your own evergreen experiences over the years, but also um, this whole idea that the idea of unblocking things also has to do with the ability to work with those that have shared values, right. And common care. Um, I think that, you know, the guiding principles of that design, even though business wise, as you're saying, it might always, it might not, you might be tempted um, from the business or financial perspective to create value in another way. Um, I think staying true to those roots and those, uh, guiding principles i think at the end of the day determines the longevity of the event right as a as a culture carrier yeah yeah I, and there's another component that was really important for us was ensuring that we were creating a safe space for everyone mm-hmm. i think traditionally people that look like me um going to events and when i say safe i mean from a mental perspective inclusivity mm-hmm. and understanding that there's resources for everyone Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example of something that happened this past week in a bit, but it was important for us to talk about things that sometimes make people uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but regardless of who you were in the audience, mm-hmm. we wanted people to feel like it was a place of learning and understanding and not a level of aggression or attacking. It yeah. was questioning the system, not the people, right? Mm-hmm. And we say this a lot because we'll go and speak at a conference and look at a room that is predominantly 90 to 95% uh, middle-aged European white and talking about a topic that is embedded in tearing down a white supremacist system, a colonial system. So we always have to preface the fact that we're not here to talk about white people. We're here to talk about white supremacy, which is very different. And Many times we get people at events that we speak at get up and walk out because they feel attacked or threatened. And, you know, it's like what my therapist says to me, that is not a me problem. That is a Mm -hmm. them problem. 
the fragility is not embedded in what I said. The fragility is embedded in their inconvenience or their feeling of how they take a situation. And so having safe spaces for your speakers who are sometimes coming out to an event to talk about topics that are vulnerable is really important. Really, really important. So that's really important for us in terms of how we create an event as well as does everyone feel like they're part of an event and part of a family? So when you're, when you're considering the next iteration of this event, um, I don't know if you are considering it, but my assumption is that you are uh, considering the, you know, the, the momentum it takes to start, to start a movement like this. Um, How do you, how do you plan for the rise of change of this event into the future, right? Um, you probably have an overarching aim with this event. How do you and your team, how do you, how do you decode that? How do you kind of tackle that for next editions? There's an interesting about agents of change, right? Um, I don't necessarily consider myself an agent of change. I consider myself an advocate for change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some may say that I, I push for change a lot more, but uh, I come from the business side. I, I, I read P&Ls for 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the fundamental shift that I think we would need to take is understanding that within our organization um, or any organization where there's a real strong foundation and theme of change is that everyone needs to understand that there's a fiduciary responsibility of not losing money for the sake of change completely. I think that's really, really important. If we can find a balance, the balance, the balance sheet, and to provide change, I think that changes things a little bit because sometimes we're so, we're so motivated by wanting to do something different to change environment that we don't actually look at the business of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think taking a look at it from business and working backwards and trying to implement change within that fundamental probably will put us in a different position moving forward. Um, I also understand that on the flip side, when we're looking for partnerships, we have to find a way to explain and define the value chain for someone who wants to invest in something like this. They don't necessarily see the value of change the same way we do. What they'd see is, okay, I'm going to pull $10,000 out of my marketing budget. How is that going to pay me back? And I'm okay to have that conversation. I, I, don't, I don't think it's inauthentic to have a discussion about how change can actually lead to bottom line incremental uh, positivity. And I think yeah. we need to stop being afraid of those two things in the same sentence. Yeah. yeah I think the, the, the business sense... Um is almost foundational to enabling the change and sustaining it over time, right? Um, like you're saying, you know, at the end of the day, the truth of behavior change is that there are connected revenue streams and costs and opportunity costs to whatever it is that you do. And you need to understand that dynamic in order to sustain it over time. Otherwise it becomes idealistic at best um, without an opportunity to kind of carry it on over time. Um, yeah. Uh- we have to be real in in life that everything costs money. Like there's mm-hmm. not there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. And so if your plan includes 
this much funding, but only this much comes in, you have to have a plan on how to proceed, right? Yeah. And I think, I think we learned a lot. Um, and part of the learning process is it's easy for me to tell everyone what to do or my, my partner and I tell everyone what to do. But part of the learning process is understanding that everyone else in your organization is part of this learning process and that they need to sometimes learn the hard way as well. Yeah. Now, tell us a little bit more about, because you have all of these streams of activities going on, <clears throat> uh, you're also a very passionate uh, chef. I mean, people might know you from... Um, you know, seeing you on TV, where in a miraculous amount of time you whack together the most incredible dishes on uh, on TV in Canada. At least I've seen a number of these episodes, and I'm sure people have seen these if they follow you on social media. Uh, what, what what is that? What is that? What is the driver for you to write cookbooks? How does that build into this kind of uh, um, movement that you? that you've kind of well started but you're 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 fueling it very heavily right what's yeah what's I, the drive? I mean it, i think on the surface a lot of people uh mostly the public consider me still as quote-unquote chef uh I'll, i'll be completely honest i i cook very little now um mm. my team my team doesn't even want me around the kitchen because you know we we work <laughs> differently and uh to be honest they're much better at you know uh, producing than i am at this point uh But I do do the chefing part uh, for clients and for TV. Uh, and I still have a love for creating stories. For me, yeah. it is all about storytelling. Yeah. Um, I love the fact that I think that we can connect the story to every single meal we've ever eaten. And mm -hmm. that, could be, that could be as simple as getting a bagel with cream cheese at the airport while waiting to board a plane um, to you know, my, my newfound love of asparagus after my five days in Frankfurt, you know, <laughs> like so asparagus. much, yeah. so much. I got it tattooed on my arm in Frankfurt. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> but, but to me, you see, this is a story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a story that transcends just a vegetable that's white. There's yeah. a much deeper meaning and it means so much to so many people in Germany of which I did not know about because in Canada, we would only get asparagus for maybe 10 to 14 days of the year, white asparagus. And it usually came from France. And yeah. that's what we knew of it. It came for 14 days, generally in April, and it would cost a shit ton of money to get, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that it was in every corner store and every convenience store and grocery store in Germany, I'm like, man, this is the land of white asparagus. <laughs> and it was on, and it was on every menu at every mm -hmm. restaurant, right? So yeah. Back to your story, um, it is about, for me, being able to transcend these feelings and emotions and senses from a plate of food. It's not even about the taste of the food. What does that dish mean to someone? And in our creation, what sort of memories and senses does that bring out in that one particular moment? Yeah. And it's amazing what the audio or the sensory deprivation of not being able to smell food whilst you're cooking it on tv or hearing about food i'm i'm i've recently um we were delivering a program our event design certificate program in kuching in sarawak in east uh, uh, malaysia uh, uh, yeah east malaysia um and one of the participants pointed out a podcast called uh, the taste of place uh which it's it, it just kind of 
totally brings me into the spirit of the laksas and of the of the food and of the you know the sarawak pepper and i think the way that this lady speaks about it she's based in london uk um and uses a sense um of audio to describe how flavors anchor the stories back to the long houses and to the traditions that she knows as a kid but being you know growing up in different places transporting the food culture and traveling in your head really between the sensory perceptions is a very powerful uh, trigger right um um what fascinates me about that i think you know and this is something that i'm i'm i'm, I'm well, wanting to get your answer on is very often i find like trying to recall smells in your head is very difficult or like sensory perceptions are very in the moment right and, but uh, i noticed after covid going back to places that you haven't been to for a while the sense of smell can spark memory very quickly in time lapses that are very large right i hadn't been back to asia for four five for four years three and a half years and going back having lived there for five and a half years really triggered smells in my head right it it triggered memories of stories um how do you how do you think we could better use those when it comes to designing events or designing ways for people to feel included in events because these are very important things that very often you can't really control but you could orchestrate how do you how do you think we could use this more effectively so i actually write in my book the story about how certain sense sensory moments can trigger um childhood memories or any memories mm -hmm. whatsoever mm -hmm. you know uh, laksa for me actually is one of those because i i i own the laksa and so i have a deep connection to laksa uh, from that perspective but there are things that if i'm in any major city mm -hmm. that has a china that, that has, has a chinatown i would generally find my way to the chinatown and there is something that will happen in my journey in that chinatown either from a smell, a sound, or a sight that will trigger a memory of my childhood. Mm -hmm. The first chapter in my book is dedicated to dishes that my grandparents made that I have no mm -hmm. recipes for. Mm -hmm. The only memories I had were from sight, uh, smell, and taste. But I never learned anything that when I was a child. Mm -hmm. So in retesting them, I built them from senses. I think if we took that approach in how we design food for events, it'd be really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think too easy do we take the job of taking a catering menu and saying, okay, for breakfast, we're going to have muffins and coffee. For lunch, we're going to have roast beef sandwiches and a Caesar salad. It's not deliberate. But here's one thing that I preached for many years when I worked on the supplier side. Yeah. Food and beverage as a budget line item in events is generally in the top four, right? Mm -hmm. It's usually audiovisual, rental, speakers, uh, like content and that's it's a huge budget line item but seldom do we put any concentration on the deliberateness of trying to design food for an event right so, yeah that integrating a little bit more storytelling behind food and this is something really big from our catering side of our business is that 
there is a stronger desire from customers to show more inclusivity and diversity in food. Mm -hmm. uh, we like to say that our food services on the catering side is what we call quote unquote culturally appropriate. Mm -hmm. What we do is we don't want to go out and say, so hypothetically, let's say you came to me and said, we want Singaporean cuisine. Our goal is not to find recipes, create it and say Singaporean inspired. Because to me, there is a fine line of appreciation and appropriation. What we will tell you is because we have access to chefs all over the world, we will enlist, enlist a chef who specializes in that, that we will work with to create this unique experience that is completely authentic to the experience that the customer will have. Like yeah. we have a chef on our roster, Chef Eva Chin, who was born and raised in Hawaii to a lineage of family that is from Hong Kong and Singapore. So she mm -hmm. has a deep connection to Singaporean cuisine and Malaysian cuisine. And mm -hmm. so she would be someone we would call and say, we want to do a Malaysian lunch or Singaporean lunch. And so we'd sit down and create something that we would give credit and credence to her because very seldom do we give credits, credit and credence to those who actually created something for an event. And so I think that taking that extra step in deliberateness, I think customers would really appreciate that. The fact that they're just not eating from a perspective of need, but mm -hmm. as an experience, yeah. right? I always say that far too much that attendees already treat conferences like mini vacations, mm. right? And they mm. abuse themselves with the way they eat, drink, and essentially behave during a three or four day conference. Whereas if we peeled those things back and created more of an experience where we can be part of that ethos, I think it'd be so much more unique when you're attending an event. I like that a lot. And I think it's also the, the temporary context you create at an event is a perfect microcosm to be transported into a, into a limited amount of time in which you can experience something very intensely, right? It's almost like a travel bubble for a larger group of people um, that you could deliberately design to be in a specific way. Um, so I really like that idea of, you know, taking those ground principles of um, describing the experience and making the food and beverage um, kind of journey, because it's a journey through a number of days or through a certain period of time um, that needs to have a certain function and form for keeping people, you know, with their basic needs, but the emotional, social and functional needs that you can serve with that providing they're done very consciously, I think have a very powerful function of transporting people. Yeah, for sure. Um, every sip and every bite has a story, right? Of every meal is an untold story is, is something that you say in your book, uh, the double happiness cookbook. Um, and it's something that can be shared um, uh, timelessly. Now the concept of time and the design of time is something that has my highest fascination. <laughs> uh, you just talked about being transported in time back to your childhood and recreating from the sights and sound and smells, something that you describe in your book. What are some of the other things that um, people might find in your book that uh, you'd like to share with us here uh, without giving away the full, you know, the full scope of it? Because I think it would be definitely a wise idea to click on the link that's under the podcast as well to, to get a copy of it. But um, what's, what's something else that's in the book that, that really 
tickles tickled your fancy when you wrote it down um, and you look back at it today? I think there's a couple of things. I think understanding how people read cookbooks differently is uh, an interesting fascination that people don't take the time to sort of take in. I think the layman that gets a cookbook is in it for recipes. You know, mm -hmm. earmarked, posted notes on the recipes and then they tough it out, which is fantastic. If you ask chefs and cooks on cookbooks, we don't generally cook from cookbooks because we cook on our own already. Um, we get cookbooks because they're actually journals, right? There are inspirational stories embedded into the book as to why that book was written. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that was important for us is that uh, all the chapter introductions for me were embedded in a time of life as an mm -hmm. immigrant kid in this, in this country and mm -hmm. how I progress with the journey of food for me and my family. And so if people take the time to read those prologues and parts of the book, it transcends the recipe, mm -hmm. right? It, mm -hmm. You really get embedded into a place of how that recipe came about and where the inspiration came from. Um, there's also an almost in everyone's books, like in my book, I have, you know, things like pantry essential. Uh, and, and I'd be like, if, if you're a big fan of Asian cooking and it's not just Asian ingredients, here are the 50 things in my pantry that yeah. if, if it was you and you want to be really unique and how you create it at home outside of olive oil, uh, salt and pepper, slowly buy these things and integrate them into your, into your cooking technique. Yeah. Uh, and then because Asian food is so embedded in, you know, Chinese cuisine is essentially arguably the birthplace of the noodle, right? Whether you talk yeah. about pasta or, or whatever it is around the world, we have so many different versions. So I do an entire section just on noodles alone because yeah. Yeah. most people, when they think about Chinese food, they'll say like chow mein, but we've got like, a hundred variations of noodles that we would use for fried noodles, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are some intricacies, but I think understanding the stories that mm -hmm. the author has written in a book um, it makes a big difference on the experience of reading a book. Yeah, no, big time. And I, and I see that in practice as well when um, not just the types of restaurants that you, you know, have created the type of, you know, pop-up kitchen hospitality concepts that you, you know, demonstrate on your way back from IMAX. You were just sharing that, you know, this pop-up at Borough Market in London and you're doing this left and right. And it, it seems like you are, um, um, you're taking the flavors on the road with you and you're inspiring people as you go to different places. I think that's uh, very commendable. This is what events and events people do by trade and by profession, I think, but also by just by passion, right? It's something that um, it's not just traveling for the sake of consuming, but it's traveling for the sake of giving back and instilling something, bringing something new to, to other places. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think about what I learned in my short stint in Borough Market in London for that one pop-up in mm -hmm. Juma kitchen. Uh, mm -hmm. And if anyone doesn't know, Phil Juma is a, uh, is born and bred in the UK, but his lineage is Iraqi. And mm -hmm. he has done a lot of social experiments on food, which he shares on his social media. Mm -hmm. um, and we were cooking in his kitchen while they ran regular service for Iraqi street food. And mm -hmm. we integrated uh, South, uh, South Asian and Asian cuisine into that experience that day. Mm -hmm. But it was tremendous for me to learn more about Iraqi food in two hours than I did in my entire life. And the social experiment that I saw Phil do, Chef Phil do just previously the week before, 
which he just posted on his social last week, and I encourage everyone to watch, was he walked down the streets of London with food, Iraqi food. And before he asked some, before he handed out the food for someone to try, his first question to people was, what's the first thing you think of when I say Iraq? And overwhelmingly, what do you think the answer was? It was conflict. the response, conflict yeah. or war. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Really, really interesting that, you know, how we have been shaped by instances in life and media uh, and, and, and society that we think of an entire culture and nationality of people of just one thing. Exactly. And then he, yeah. and then he passed on a Cuba and someone ate it and their minds were blown. And he yeah. changed, like you talk about change. That single conversation has changed that person on the other side forever, right? And I felt the same way that we never even whispered the words conflict or war in our time there. And we just talked about food and how much it meant to people when they bit into something for the first time, that Mm -hmm. their entire mindset and shift of a particular topic went 180. And that's the power. And it's almost, and it's almost yeah. And then as you're saying that, it's almost this idea of you trigger the first, the first bias, right? Is what what um, by a very simple question, but the sensory perception of the what happens on the inside by tasting the food, and how that changes much more radically, kind of that sensation and feeling, which. You know, feelings and sensations, emotions are at the basis of behavior change. You have to program them at the right time and you have to deliver them in the right way. And I think this is a fantastic example, Trevor, of saying, you know, taking a very big topic that's very flavored, uh, literally in in the wrong way, right, by media over the past, you know, uh, two decades. Um, And putting it into perspective of the... Um, centuries um, of tradition of food that evolved over time that is basically parked by this last little layer of media manipulation and I think yeah by by far I think that you know the power of events or these little micro events like you're describing them there um, are the things that I think are going to create change um, on a small scale but on a very fundamental and, and critical scale um, yeah. I think if you looked at, if you dove even deeper into it and just took a step back to understand the power of food mm-hmm. and understanding that a single moment on your palate can shift unconscious bias, which has been embedded in someone's brain for a long time. Yeah. That's, that's how powerful one single bite can be. Like, I never even thought about that until this actually this moment that someone takes a bite of something and years of unconscious bias is shifted right away. That's so if you were able to take that core concept and implement it into your design through food, can you see how you can break down walls and barriers? Right. Amazing. Right. And I think this is this is um, yeah, I think I think that that. that facet of event design really requires, um, or doesn't just require, but it, it's actually also really a lot of fun, right? So if, if you're able to turn it into, um, into the creative array that it is already, right? I mean, food and beverage and what we put into our bodies to basically rocket fuel 
our other behaviors <laughs> is so fundamental and it's it's very well developed it's been polished over many years right uh, the problem is each of us only have a little bit of its uh, spectrum <laughs> in our in our taste buds i think there's so much to explore there and i uh, i'm really excited about that prospect and and i hope we have uh, many people that take the example that you've set and that you're setting right now um which brings me to maybe the last question for the onstage part and then we'll jump backstage real quick um the last question trevor is um we, we spoke about your horizon of change and what you're working on for this coming year um would you be our guest one year from today and look back at your horizon of change and have a second conversation absolutely absolutely yeah. i would i mean I think if I go back to the beginning of our conversation, we as event people always say to ourselves, we're as good as our last event. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times in the moment for the moment, we are positioning for change and change again in one year. And I'd love to take a retrospective look back and seeing if what we did, uh, and I don't believe in right or wrong necessarily. I believe that you should just follow your heart and do what you think you've done, but times change. And I think yeah. that is the biggest thing of why we have so many people that are resistant to change because mm. they're used to something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, we have to, you know, the saying about you have to get comfortable of being uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'd love to see a year from now um, where my progression is and how this conversation may progress. Yeah. Well, let's, let's totally do that. I'm going to take you up on it. I'm going to send you an invite for a year plus one, as we call that one. You'll see some episodes as, as well of others that have set their horizons of change and a year onward, whilst we feel that change is very slow. If you look back a year uh, into the past and you listen to the podcast that you recorded a year back and then think about all the things that happened in between, it's also a fantastic measure of you know progress over time. Something to be celebrated and something to be to, to cherish and to look back upon. So... We're definitely going to take you up on that, uh, Trevor. And um, um, it doesn't mean we're not going to talk in the meantime, right? But at least we have that anchor a year from today. Um, thank you so much for joining uh, the Design to Change podcast for this uh, onstage part. We'll see you in a moment backstage. Um, so hang, hang tight. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Design to Change Designer Conversation Series. Explore these conversations and additional content at designtochange.online. Want more right now? Tune into the backstage episode of this conversation and hear what the experts discuss offstage.